I'd like to think Jesus is a great person. Uh, I just, it's a, it's to me, it's a silly story. Jesus is God's son, but he's also real. It's idolization, basically, the idea that there's a human being that can be viewed as a god. I I, I believe it, that uh, the teachings of Jesus uh, they ring true to me. This the way it makes sense to live that way. Jesus, I believe, was a liberal. And I think, looking at where we're going, I think he'd be happy to see that people are becoming more and more accepting. I think I'm, I grow more curious about that every day, um, uh, and, and how I can be a better person, uh, maybe by following his teachings, and, and maybe it will be a, a fit for me, and maybe it won't. But you know, I'll, I have a lifetime to figure that out. Is Jesus really God? Did he did he really do all the things that the Bible says that he did, or are those just made up stories? As we go through our Explore God series, tackling some of the big questions of Christianity, eventually we have to address the issue of Jesus Christ. Who is this man? What does what does the Bible say about him? What does history have to say about him? Is he really God? Eventually, this is a question that each of us have to answer personally. And our answer to that question has eternal significance. For me, answering this question was simple. I was, I was raised in a Christian home. Both my parents were, were very active in the church as leaders. My dad was a deacon in the Baptist church and in fact, for a number of years when I was growing up, he was the minister of music at our church. Not only that, but my, my mom uh, taught Sunday school. She worked with the youth group. She, uh, she was over vacation Bible school, and at one point she helped start and then led a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week prayer ministry that was up at the church where people could call, call in. So we were up at the church any time the doors were open, and I mean absolutely any time the doors were open. I grew up literally, in the church, right? So pretty much grew up in the church. And, and I can tell you from the time I was born, I was at every single men's prayer breakfast, Sunday school class, Sunday morning service. I was at Wednesday night supper, Wednesday night prayer meeting. I was at RAs. I was at vacation Bible school. I was in every single production uh, that the children's choir did from the time I was born until I, I was in college, right? So I have been in more Easter pageants and Christmas pageants than you could possibly imagine. I grew up in the church. I grew up knowing the story of Jesus Christ. I heard all the stories. I heard about his miracles, how he, how he walked on the water, how he took five loaves and two fish and he fed 5,000 people. I heard about how he, he healed the, the lame and the sick and the blind. I heard all of it, and I, I knew it all. And from a very early age, I embraced the Scripture, the Bible, as truth. And so I embraced all of these stories as being true. And so for me, answering the question, is Jesus really God, didn't take uh, a big step. It was just something that I grew up with. It was something that I had embraced from an early, early age. But there are many who are here this morning or, or even just in the Austin area who are going through this Explore God series, and they're trying to figure out their answer to the question, who is Jesus? Is Jesus really God? 
at one point in his ministry, Jesus was, was walking with his disciples, and he stops and he says, who do people say that I am? And after they answer, he turns the question back to them and says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And at that point, they were forced to answer. And again, every single one of us, at some point in our life, has to personally answer that question, who do I say that Jesus is? So this morning, we're going to look at at Scripture, at the Bible, and we're also going to look at some historical sources as we go on this journey together and try to discover who is Jesus. Is he really God? This is a journey that's been taken for centuries. So our task this morning is to, to look at these sources and to figure out, is Jesus really God? Is he really who he says he is? And so all we have to do is cover a couple thousand years of information in just 25, 30 minutes, right? So uh, buckle up because we're going to fly. All right, so the first thing I want us to consider is this. I want us to look at the Old Testament prophecy. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, so uh, you're going to use the Bible to prove to us that Jesus is really God. That seems fair, right? But just bear with me. This is where we're going to start and eventually we'll, we'll get a little bit further into some outside sources. But really, even as we look at the Old Testament, uh, it's not necessarily just a uh, Christian uh, source. Because even Judaism, the Jewish faith, recognizes what we as Christians call the Old Testament. That's what they recognize as their scripture. And much of the Old Testament is spent pointing towards this coming Messiah or the Christ, the one that God promised, that God says this is going to be the man who will be God, who is going to save all of mankind, right? And so we have these Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah will be, about what he'll be like, and the things that will happen in his life. I think we can all agree that the circumstances of our birth are outside of our control. Can we, can we agree on that, Right? If we could control the circumstances of our birth, like when we were born, where we were born, and what family we were born into, we would all be born into families that were much better looking, had a lot more money, and were a lot more intelligent, right? We would, we would probably choose something different, but, but we're born, and it's outside of our control. And so it's really special that a number of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled had to do with his birth. An, a, great deal of the prophecies had to do with when the Messiah would be born and, and what his family would be like, the line that he would come from. And some of those include that he would be a descendant of Abraham, that he would be Jewish, and, and from Abraham he would come through the line of Isaac, and from Isaac through Jacob, and from Jacob through the tribe of Judah. And from the tribe of Judah he would be a descendant from the line of King David. Not only that, but he would be born in Bethlehem and all of these things. Jesus fulfilled in his birth. Not only that, in Micah we read that, that there is going to be a great suffering and death that comes along right at, right at the time that the Messiah, the Christ, is to be born. And, and we see this fulfilled as, as uh, the wise men come to King Herod and say that they're looking for the king of the Jews and, and the Messiah. And Herod gets angry because he's the king. He doesn't want anyone to take over. And so he orders that every boy two years and under be put to death. And so we see that prophecy fulfilled, which actually leads to another prophecy being fulfilled, which is that uh, Jesus and his family, Mary and Joseph, flee to Egypt so that they can save their son. 
And as they flee to Egypt, they live there for a time, and then they move back to Israel, fulfilling another prophecy of the Messiah, where, G- where God says that, I will call my son out of Egypt. We know that these, these prophecies are, are important. And what's really interesting is that there's a mathematician named Peter Stoner who figured out the probability. He calculated what are the chances of one person fulfilling just eight of the over 300 messianic prophecies. Okay, so he did the math, he did the calculations. I don't know what formula he used. He's a mathematician, I'm not, right? So he figured it out, and what he came up with was that the chances of one person just fulfilling eight of the over 300 prophecies is one times 10 to the power of 17. So that's one with 17 zeros behind it. To illustrate this, he he said it would be the same as if you took enough silver dollars to cover the surface of the state of Texas and you stacked those silver dollars two feet deep throughout the state of Texas. And then you took one of those coins and you put a mark on it and you somehow mixed it in randomly in the pile covering the entire state of Texas. And then you blindfolded someone and had them walk as far as they want in whatever direction they want. And when they stopped, still blindfolded, they bent down and picked up a coin and they were to pick up the exact marked coin. That's the same chances as one person fulfilling just eight of the Old Testament prophecies. And, and yet Jesus not only fulfilled eight of them, he fulfilled over 300. He fulfilled over 300. The chances of that happening have been calculated at one times 10 to the 157th power. Right? So these are, these are unbelievable odds that we see that Jesus has fulfilled these. And, and that becomes important because a lot of these prophecies were not just about things that, that the Messiah would do or things that, that would uh, revolve around his birth, but things that involved names or titles that the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God would be given. And some of those are, are Emmanuel, right? At Christmas time, we sing about Emmanuel, God with us. That was one of the titles that Jesus was given. The other name is Jesus. The Yeshua is the Hebrew name for, uh, for the Greek word Jesus. And it means God saves. But it's not just in the names, but also in some of the titles. Uh, a lot of the times in the Old Testament, the Messiah is referred to as the Son of God or the Son of Man. And throughout Jesus' teaching, what we see is that he not only accepts these titles when other people use it of him, but he actually claims it for himself. Let's look at some of Jesus' teaching. Turn with me uh, real quick to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 63. And this is what it says. Jesus is, is uh, he's at his trial just before his crucifixion. And, and listen to what it says. It says, uh, Jesus is being questioned, and the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, replied Jesus, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. So we see that that the the Pharisees, the the chief priests, ask Jesus, are you the son of God? And 
And Jesus doesn't say, I'm the son of God. He replies by saying, I am the son of man. And this is important because you can go back to Daniel chapter 7, and there's a prophecy about a figure called the son of man who represents God. And so from this, we can see that, that the Jewish leaders, the resident Bible scholars, understood when Jesus was using that, that title for himself as the Son of Man, that he was in fact claiming to be God, and they would have none of it. There's, there's actually a couple other instances that really demonstrate Jesus using uh, titles and names to refer to himself as God. The best and probably uh, most widely known is the use of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. And I know what you're probably thinking, well, I say I am all the time. Like, I am hungry. I am tired. I am wondering how long this guy's going to go. Right? We say I am all the time, and it doesn't mean that we're making any claim to be God. But when Jesus uses it, he uses it in a special way. And you might be wondering, so what's so special about using the name or the title I am? Well, if you go back to the book of Exodus, Moses is in the desert, and God is calling him to go and lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses says, well, well, that's great, God, but how are all these people going to believe that it's really God sending me and that I'm just not some crazy man on a mission? And God says, when you go, tell the people that I am has sent you. And so God reveals to Moses his personal name. God reveals himself as I am. And so what we see is Jesus takes the name, the personal name of God that that was so revered in the Jewish faith that they wouldn't even write the whole phrase out. They wouldn't even write it out. They would just put in the name, right? They they, They respected the name of God so much. And Jesus comes along the scene and seven times he metaphorically refers to himself as the I am. We, we saw one of those references last week. John fourteen six. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But there's, there's a, a few examples that are even better than just these seven I am statements. Because there's a couple times where Jesus makes it absolutely clear That he's not just saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, but he is completely and fully accepting and applying the personal name of God to himself. The best example is John chapter 8, verse 58. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So in this case, much like the other cases where Jesus uses I am this way, not metaphorically, but just completely owning it as a title for himself, what you have is you have a sentence or a statement that just kind of seems to cut off. It's like before Abraham was, I am what? It, do, it doesn't say. It doesn't go on. You expect that there would be something else, but there's nothing else there. And so scholars look at this and they say, oh yeah, he's actually claiming I am the personal name of God for himself. And we know that this is true because when you look at the, the rest of John chapter 8, immediately after Jesus says this, the Pharisees and the Jewish hearers pick up stones and they're ready to put Jesus to death right there on the spot. Now that's a big deal because remember the Israelites are under Roman authority at this time and I don't think the Romans who liked to keep the peace in their territories would take too kindly to people just murdering each other in the streets. So this is kind of a big deal, that, that Jesus must have said something 
that would get them so angry that they would have no regard for any personal consequences that would come for them putting him to death. And so it's clear that, that through this, Jesus is accepting the name and applying the name, personal name of God to himself. There, there are many people who want to say, you know, Charlie, I, that, that's great that, that you believe that, that you believe that Jesus is really God. My, my opinion is that he's just a, a good teacher. He, just, he taught morality. You know, he, he taught social justice. Other people want to say, you know, Jesus was, was just a, a good prophet. Yet when, when you look at these things, you look at the claims that he makes about himself, there's got to be more to it. You see, this idea of, of uh, morality or righteousness, yes, it is absolutely true that Jesus preached righteousness. And yes, it is absolutely true that, that Jesus preached that we ought to treat one another well. But there were prophets that came before Jesus to Israel that preached the exact same message. So this message in itself was nothing new to the people of Israel. Certainly not anything deserving of death. And what we find is that it's actually Jesus' own claim to be God. As we saw in his trial, it's his claim to, in fact, be God that, that leads to his crucifixion and his death. But in his death, as in his life, we see that he backs up his claims by doing the things that only God himself can do. Miracles. We see that, that Jesus demonstrates that he is in fact God by performing miracles. And uh, I, I want to look quickly. You don't have to turn there. It's going to come up on the screen. But John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 say this. Jesus did other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So John, the writer of the Gospel of John, is, is saying that, hey, look, I've written all of these things down. I've recorded some of Jesus' miracles and some of his teachings so that you can look at it, that you can study it, and that by studying it, you would believe that Jesus is really God. Some people might say, well, that's great. That's, that's all in the Bible, but are there any outside sources that tell us that Jesus actually did what the Bible says he did? Well, I've got a quote here from Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian. Not a believer, not a Christian, just a first century Jewish historian. And he says of Jesus that he was a performer of paradoxical feats. Outside source that recognizes that Jesus was doing some miraculous things. And even the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of um, rabbinical sayings and teachings that was recorded over hundreds of years. It was, it was finally completed about 200 years after Christ. And this is how the Talmud uh, talks about Jesus. It says, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshua, remember that's the Hebrew name for Jesus, Yeshua was hanged. And that being hanged refers to his crucifixion. Because he had practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So what we see in this is that there are multiple sources that are, that are actually hostile to Christianity that, that have to come up with some explanation for how was Jesus able to do all these things. They can't just sit back and say, well, that must have never happened because 
the miracles and the works that Jesus did were so widely known that they couldn't just ignore it. They had to come up with, with some sort of explanation. They had to explain how this happened. And even though they didn't give credit to God, they tried to discredit Christianity, at least they acknowledged that there were miracles. There was something special taking place through this man, Jesus Christ. You might say that uh, Jesus actually saved his best miracle for last. Because by far, the most important miracle is Jesus' resurrection. Now, before we go any further, I, I've got to come clean. I want to be honest about this, right? So, uh, there is a practice in the music industry called sampling, right? Where, where uh, an artist takes a, a melody or a lyric from one song and he uses it as his own. So that's why when you listen to Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice, it sounds a lot like Queen and David Bowie's Under Pressure. Ding, 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 right? They sound the same. Or when MC Hammer sings You Can't Touch This, it sounds like Super Freak by Rick James, right? They're sampling from other people's music. So I'm just going to be honest. Uh, this next section I've sampled from uh, one of the pastors over at Hill Country Bible Church, Austin, Russell Johnson, um, who taught this, this message last week. It was just so good. I wanted to share it with you. So it's not my own, but it's really good. Uh, and, and really, where we start with this is 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're actually going to start in verse 3. And we're going to look at some of the details of around the resurrection, not just at what the Scripture have to say about Jesus' resurrection, but what are some outside historical sources? How can we know that, that Jesus was really God? That the things that the Bible says happened, really happened. So look with me, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 15. It says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first, of import, first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Okay, let's stop right there. So here's fact number one about the resurrection. Jesus died, right? Jesus died. In fact, we have a number of, of outside sources that testify to this fact. First century Roman historian Tacitus says this. He says, Christus, the founder of the Christian name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. So this outside source, outside the Bible, lines up with what scripture says, that Jesus was put to death. Another, Celsus. Celsus is another Roman historian who spent much of his life trying to disprove Christianity is real. And this is what Celsus says. Jesus, accordingly, exhibited after his death only the appearance of wounds received on the cross and was not in reality as wounded as he is described to have been. So what we see with Celsus is that he's out there trying to say, look, Jesus, yeah, he... He wasn't as badly beaten as the Christians say he was. But when he steps back and he looks at all the evidence, he has to at least say that, yes, Jesus died on the cross. He was crucified. So fact number one is that Jesus died on the cross. Fact number two, Jesus was buried. Now, when historians look at this account, they, they measure it by a different standard. They measure it by the standard of embarrassment. And you're probably thinking, what is the standard of embarrassment? The standard of embarrassment says that if a story 
is recorded, and it's embarrassing to the main players or the people who are, are recording the story that it must be true because people in the ancient world who are trying to make themselves out to be heroes wouldn't record something completely bar- embarrassing about themselves. So when they look at this story of, of Jesus, they look to, to 1 Corinthians, and here's what it says, beginning in verse 4. It says that he was buried and that he was raised to dead on the third day according to the scriptures. So the next thing we see is that, that Jesus was buried. And if you go back to the Gospels, what we find is that, that Jesus' body was claimed by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And there's actually a number of outside sources uh, other than the Bible that list Joseph of Arimathea as the man who came forward and claimed Jesus' body. And you might be thinking, well, well how is that in any way embarrassing? Here's, here's how. Jesus had spent three years with 12 men. His best friends, day in and day out, he lived with them, he traveled with them, he spent every waking moment with them. And not only did one of them turn around and betray him and hand him over to be killed, but the remaining 11 didn't have the guts to come forward and say, that's our friend, can, can, can we have his body and just take it and give it a proper burial? Because you see, the the Romans, they couldn't care less what happened to the body. As far as they were concerned, it was just easier to leave it up on the cross and let the wild animals and birds take care of it. So it's important that someone had to come and claim the body, yet Jesus' best friends wouldn't even come forward and ask for the body. Instead, we read about a man named Joseph of Arimathea. A little bit about Joseph that we know from Scripture is that he was a member of the Sadducees, part of the very same group of people that condemned Jesus to death. Although scripture does tell us that he was a dissenter. And so you have this man who's on the very council that condemned Jesus to death, even though he doesn't agree with it. He doesn't boldly step forward and say, no, we're not doing this. He's just kind of like, hey guys, I don't think we should be doing this. Jesus is kind of a really neat guy. No, he just sits back and lets it happen. Not only that, but the scripture records that, that he's a secret disciple of Jesus. He's not even willing to publicly identify himself as a follower of Jesus Christ, and this is the man who comes forward to take Jesus' body. That's embarrassing. In fact, it's so embarrassing that historians agree that it must be true. Let's look back again at 1 Corinthians 15. The next part says that that he was buried... Verse 4, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. What we see here is, is that there's an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb. Now there are a number of theories about why the tomb is empty, and I don't have time to go into all of them. There's, there's actually a huge list of theories of why the tomb is empty. The first one, the earliest one is this, that the disciples came and stole Jesus' body. And that's why the tomb is empty. Do you want to see a problem with that? You mean to tell me the same 11 guys who didn't have the guts to come forward and legally claim Jesus' body all of a sudden got brave enough to take on the Roman centurions guarding the tomb, risking their own lives because the penalty for grave robbing was death. So they're going to risk their own lives to go and steal Jesus' body just a couple days later when they could have just asked for it? That That doesn't add up. One of the other most famous ones is that, that the disciples really, they just had the wrong tomb. 
right? They were using Apple Maps instead of Google Maps, and they just got led to the wrong place. Well, if that was the case, why didn't the Jewish leaders who wanted to stop any talk of resurrection just come forward and say, hey, uh, you guys, y'all are a bunch of idiots. You're at the wrong place. We've got Jesus' body right here. Look, he's dead as a doornail. He's stiff as a board. He didn't rise from the dead. Look, here's his body. Let's unwrap him. He's right there. So that one doesn't add up either. Here's, here's the thing about all these theories about the empty tomb. It's not that they're impossible. But you don't have theories about an empty tomb unless you have an empty tomb. You don't have theories about who shot JFK unless who got shot. Right, so the, reason, the fact that we have all these theories of an empty tomb tells us that there, there must be truth to the fact that there is an empty tomb. Fact number one is that Jesus died. Fact number two is that Jesus was buried. And fact number three is the empty tomb. Finally, fact number four. Let's keep looking. Back in 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 5, it says that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Skip down to verse 11. It says this. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. So fact number four is this, that the disciples believed and preached that Jesus rose from the dead. All right, and here's how historians navigate this. They, they look at this and they say, if something is going to be declared to be true, it has to be attested to by multiple sources. You can't just have one source. You can't just have one person that says, I saw Jesus raised from the dead and, and therefore accepted as true. So let's use the example of Jesus being called the friend of sinners. Right? You have to have multiple times where Jesus is demonstrated to be the friend of sinners. We see this in the fact that, that Jesus interacts with the woman at the well in Samaria. And then again, he, he befriends Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a sinner. And then another tax collector, Matthew, he, he befriends Matthew and goes to Matthew's house where all the known tax collectors and sinners were hanging out, having a party, and we find Jesus there. And not only that, but we have a woman who's caught in the act of adultery that they bring forward to Jesus, and he shows grace and mercy to her. And so we have multiple times that Jesus is, called, is, is demonstrated to be the friend of sinners. And so historians look at that and say, yes, you can call Jesus the friend of sinners. The same is true with the resurrection. It's not just the two women who were the first to arrive at the tomb who, who saw Jesus that say it. It's, it's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's the group of 12 hiding out in a room that Jesus appeared to them. It's, it's Peter and James and Paul and at one time a group of 500 people. Now, some people want to say, well, those people were just hallucinating. They weren't really seeing it. Psychiatrists say if you can get 500 people to have the same hallucination, that's a greater miracle than Jesus being raised from the dead. I love what um, Chuck Colson, who was an aide to Nixon during the Watergate scandals, had to say. This is what he says about the resurrection. 
He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if that were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they could not keep the lie for three weeks. Are you, are you telling me that 12 apostles could keep the lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So here, yeah, this is, this is anecdotal, but that's pretty good, right? That you have these 12 uneducated, ordinary men who are able to not only make up a creative lie, but to then suffer torture, and every single one of them suffered death for a lie that, that they knew that they had made up? Who would do that? Who would do that? It's clear that that they believed and taught that they had seen Jesus resurrected. They believed it. We've seen that Jesus, um, the fact that, that he is God, these claims are substantiated not only through Old Testament prophecy, not only are they seen in Jesus' teaching and in his miracles, but, but even through history we can see that, that Jesus claims to be God, that what the Bible says about him is true, that Jesus really is God. At this time, I want to invite one of my good friends and one of our members, Annika, to come up. And um, Annika is, has got a great story. You know, she has, has really wrestled with the question, is Jesus really God? And she's really had to wrestle through Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And so... Um, you can just grab that off the stand, no big deal. Uh, okay, use your, she's, a, she's a hand talker. All right, should I move this table? Do I need to back away? No, okay. no I'll try not to knock it over. Let's see if we can raise this bad boy up. How's that? That's good. All right, so my first question to you is, is just to tell us about your journey. Wrestling with the question, is Jesus really God? Um, well, I've been baptized three times. I don't think I told you that the first time around. I was christened um, Catholic, and then I was baptized as one of Jehovah's Witnesses when I was 15. And then I was baptized in my 30s um, in the American River as, as a Christian. So I figure I got all my fire insurance. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> but, uh, um, having, having been raised a Jehovah's Witness, they, you know, it's pretty infamous. There are several teachings that are very different from the regular Christian faith, and one of the biggest ones is that Jesus is not God. Um, and I, you know, I, just, I don't think it matters what vantage point you come at it from, whether it's uh, somebody taught you about there is a Jesus, but he's not God, or that, you know, is it Buddha, is it Allah, is it Shiva? No matter what, that question still is there, is who is this Jesus? And so um, Ed and I had, Ed, Ed was raised Lutheran, me Jehovah's Witness, and we did the typical, you know, American dream thing. Um, you know, we had two good-paying jobs, big house, a boy and a girl, two cars, um, and I personally was completely empty, really just imploding from the inside out, and, and I, one day I got on my knees and I was like, okay, I know what I'm missing is God, but I have no idea who you are or where to find you, um, or if you're Jesus. So then, uh, what steps did you take to find the answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? 
Um, yeah, that was about a one-year journey. I mean, I wish I could, you know, I wish I could say I sat through a sermon like this and went, aha, Jesus is God, but that wasn't the case. I'm an engineering background, degrees in computer science, and I'm a very factual kind of person, and I had definitely come to a place in my life where I was tired of having been spoon-fed. I had gotten to a place where I realized I believed a whole hodgepodge of things, and I had no idea why I believed them. And so I really had to go through this process of tearing down my theological framework because everything I heard, I was filtering through that. Um, I even, Ed and I went to um, a church, ironically, where we came to faith. It's called River Rock Church, but this was in Folsom, California. It's a great name. And it's a great name. And we went to their first public service. And that night we went to the pastor's house for their life group. And I showed up at the door. That's kind of embarrassing to say now. I showed up at the door. I had my Bible. So witnesses have their own translation of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation. And I told the pastor, I said, I said, I'm using my Bible because I don't trust your Bible. And I said, and if you pray, I said, don't pray to Jesus while I'm there. I said, you can, I said, you can pray in Jesus' name, but don't pray to Jesus while I'm there. Um, and so, um, and he was great with me. Every time I asked him one question, he asked me five more and would never answer my questions and made me go look at myself. Um, and uh, taught me to be like one of the Bereans, you know, to, to go and search the scriptures and see if what I was being told um, was true. And read lots of books, um, lots of prayer, and that's finally came to the day. So what, tell us, what was it that finally got you over that line where, where having looked at all the evidence, having looked at all the sources, you were finally able to say, Jesus is God? Um, you know, I'm not smarter than the average Joe. Um, I, I do like facts, you know, I mean, I, I, it is hard. I, I guess I don't understand on this side of it. I do understand because I've been on the other side, but on this side of it, when you look at all of the evidence, and I don't just mean the stuff that's on paper and the stuff you've presented. I mean the evidence. I mean the miracles. I see miracles all the time, um, in people's lives. I see transformations that, can only be God. I know that in my, even in my own life. Um, and I look at it and say, well, how could somebody not see? Or when I read things in scripture, I mean, there's stuff, it's, it's all over the pages of scripture that Jesus says who he is. And anybody ever spar with a Jehovah's Witness, you, a seasoned one, you will know. I could regurgitate scripture left and right and could, you know, could really do battle, right? Okay. And, but I never saw I mean, I literally was, was blind and could not see. And so the thing that allowed me to put my faith in Christ Jesus, I think, was God himself. Had to open my eyes. And I remember one of the first things a pastor told me to do is, okay, you're going to go on this journey. You're going to look. Before you start anything, just pray. You can pray to dear God because, you know, you got to do the Jesus thing. But dear God, okay, you know, just show me. Show me. And I really believe that. There's a scripture that says that um, God rewards those who earnestly and diligently seek him. And I believe what he rewards them with is more of him. And so I think it was God who gave me my faith, who opened my eyes, who allowed me to see him. And now I see him everywhere. So I don't feel like I have to have faith that Jesus is real, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is alive, because I see him working every day. And we can argue until Jesus comes back again about, you know, whether there was ever a flood and a creation and all these kind of things. But nobody, nobody can argue with me about what he's done in my life. And, and that was truly a miracle, because if you'd known me 10 years ago, you'd know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Annika. You're thank welcome. you very much for sharing your story with us.
is Jesus really God? Even after you look at all the evidence, even after you look at the prophecy and his teaching and his, his personal claims, his miracles and the resurrection and, and what history has to say about him, there still comes a moment that you, you have to take that step of faith. There's still an aspect of faith that it takes to say, yes, I believe that Jesus is really God. And there are, there are spots all along the journey where, where there are people in this room who are at different places in that journey. You may be here this morning and say, you know what, Charlie, you said a bunch of stuff, you gave a bunch of sources, but I'm just not buying it. I'm not, maybe you're like Annika, you want to take some time and really dig in. And you want to get into those sources. You want to look at the history. You want to look at, at what does the Bible say? What do these outside sources have to say? And then I'm going to make my decision. If that's you, let me just encourage you. I want to encourage you to dig in. Try. Try to find something. Just dig into it and, and pull it apart because Jesus can take it. Right? That doesn't scare me that someone would want to investigate those claims because Jesus can take it. And maybe you're here this morning, and for the very first time, you're able to say through faith, yes, I believe Jesus is really God. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? My answer is, Jesus, you are God. And if that's you, I, I pray that you'll come and, and hang out with me in the back or come talk to one of our prayer teams here in a minute and just let us know. Because we want to celebrate that with you because that is a huge step in your journey. Or maybe you're, you're like me, and, and many, 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 many years ago, you came to the realization that Jesus is God. And if that's you, I, I just want to encourage you that you now have a brand new journey that you can walk on. Whether you, whether you recognize Jesus as God and trusted him as your Savior years ago, or it's this morning, you now have a new journey to walk on. And that journey is, is one of worship and obedience. Because if Jesus is really God, then he deserves our worship and our obedience. And let me tell you, the best way that I can think of that we demonstrate our worship of Jesus Christ and our obedience to him is by following through on his last command, to go and make disciples. So I want to invite you, man, if you, if you say, your answer to the question, who is Jesus, is that Jesus is really God. If that's your answer, I want to encourage you to get in on that mission. Join that journey. And come alongside myself and, and people here at River Rock Bible Church who are committed to making disciples and proclaiming the truth that Jesus really is God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we do uh, just praise you and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that we can not only look in Scripture, but there are, there are facts and there are uh, claims throughout history that demonstrate that Jesus really is God, that he is who he says he is, and that he did the things that he says he did, including dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead on the third day to demonstrate that he had fully overcome all of sin and death so that we, through, through faith in, in your son Jesus Christ, might spend eternity with you. Lord, be with us this week. For those who are still investigating, God, I pray that you, as you did with Annika, that you would make yourself real to them as only you can do. And for those of us who say, yes, I believe in Jesus, Jesus 
is God. Jesus is my Savior. Lord, give us the boldness to go and proclaim that reality to the world around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.